All right, well, I'm excited about uh, this evening um, because we are looking at the Old Testament and uh, talking a little bit about how to understand it. We obviously, we uh, know the Old Testament is important. We uh, make really big claims about this book, actually. And uh, we say that it is God's word. And obviously, that gives it some serious authority. I remember in Africa, uh, sometimes people would... um, say to me, God told me something, or they would say, God said I had to do something, and it was outside the Bible, and I always thought, whoa, that gives it a lot of authority, and sometimes it would be good advice, and sometimes it would be not so good, but I always wish they could just say it was advice, because once you say God uh, said something, then you have to do it. It's, it's authoritative, and we're saying that about the Old Testament. Here are these groups of books that God has inspired, and so we should expect it to hold a unique place in our life. You can imagine that you have a library filled with books, and there are all kinds of books in that library, but in that library somewhere, you know, there are books written by God. Uh, you're going to want to find them, and uh, those books are going to have a special, a special place. You would expect those books to be very powerful and something that you should love and something that you should value and something that should have a tremendous influence in your life. And we do value the Old Testament and believe that it should have a tremendous influence in our life. And yet we uh, open it up to read it, and a lot of the Old Testament can seem hard. Uh, Though, I mean, of course, there are other ancient works that are way more difficult than the Old Testament, but there are parts that are challenging. And definitely there are a lot of parts of the Old Testament that are misunderstood even by Christians. And uh, sometimes there are parts that are mocked by people that are not Christians, much of the time because they are misunderstood. I was reading somewhere uh, this week, someone was mocking the Bible for having unicorns in it. Have you seen that meme uh, where somebody would say, you, I can't believe you Christians, you believe in unicorns. And that's because in Numbers 23:22, it talks about the horn of a wild ox, but the uh, KJV translators translated the word unicorn, and they translated it like that because the Hebrew word literally meant a one-horned animal, and they didn't know what that animal was at that time there in England, and yet we know now that there were one-horned oxen back in the days the Old Testament was being written, and so uh, literally unicorn means one, one horn which is a silly example, of course, of how people uh, misunderstand the Old Testament, but they do it all the time and mock it, and sometimes we don't know how to respond. And as a result, some of us, even though we know it's important and um, valuable, kind of ignore it. And so we're asking, how do we benefit from it? Specifically, when you're sitting down to read the Bible, uh, how do you get something out of the Old Testament. And I, I want to encourage you, even just as we begin again today, that it's normal to need help as you study the Old Testament. And so um, I want to make sure I paint the right picture at the beginning, because I think sometimes we feel guilty, like, oh, this is hard. I'm opening up my Old Testament, and everybody else understands everything right away, and I'm supposed to always be able to understand everything totally on my own. And I just don't think that's really fair um, because we, we, we always need teachers and we've always needed teachers. And needing teachers doesn't somehow make you less special or somehow inadequate. Uh, we are a pretty individualistic culture and so we tend to think the highest form of knowing and understanding comes when I sit in a room by myself reading something by myself, and I like have an epiphany somehow. But that's not how most people throughout history have thought about how you come to know something. Um, It's funny in Africa, and this is just an illustration, but the different way people think about cheating. And so in uh, individualistic culture, when you take a quiz or a test, you obviously you do it by yourself, and you're not allowed to copy someone else, and that's really good. There's a good reason for that. But other cultures are less individualistic, and so um, what we might call cheating, they might call helping. And uh, for us, academics is more like basketball, so we're like on a team together, but if I make a shot, 
I kind of get the glory and maybe somebody gives me an assist and I can look at them, but I do the interview by myself and everybody understands that. But for, other, for others, it's more like rowing. And when you're rowing, obviously your contribution matters, but it's really all of you together working in sync that gets you across the finish line first. And if somebody's not able to row well, it really impacts you, and so you have to help them. And anyway, this isn't about cheating, but I'm just saying that understanding the Bible is not just you, but you as part of a community, and it's normal to need help to understand. That's not, that's not somehow less. <laughs> but at the same time, there is a lot of value in you individually working on understanding. And actually, this was... a one of the things that was unique about the Bible in the ancient world. So if you go back to the first five books of the Bible as an example, uh, these weren't the only written down text in the ancient world. There are lots of other texts that were rich, written down about God and about the world in the other cultures around Israel. But you know what was really interesting about those works as, uh, is where they were found and who read them? Because the books about God and about the world and even the kind of creation myths that they had in the cultures around Israel were basically always kept in places that were inaccessible to regular people, like the temples or the palaces, and they were not read, actually, to the common people. So, I mean, only one, about 1% 1 of the population was literate anyway, and literacy was kind of used as a means of keeping the common people down. So, for example, there was a work called Enuma Elish, which was a Babylonian creation myth. And one scholar says, in Mesopotamia, such texts were essentially composed for use exclusively within the domain of the elite scribal culture. Consider, for example, the setting in which the Babylonian creation myth of Enuma Elish would be accessed. While today this text may be accessed by a wide reading audience, this was hardly the case at the time of its composition and use. The tablets that bear this work were located in the temples or the foundations of the palaces or engraved in other inaccessible places, for example, palace archives. The text of Enuma Elish was never seen by the common man, but was read by the high priest on the fourth day of the New Year festival, Akitu, in the presence of the statue of Marduk in the inner sanctum of the temple its contents focused on the deeds of Marduk and the reading of the account before the idol served to remind Marduk of his responsibilities toward the world to subdue the forces of chaos. And I bring you that up just to show how different the Bible was from the beginning because God tells Moses and Joshua and others to write down his words and then teach it to the people so they can know it and teach it to others. I was just reading Deuteronomy 6 with my children the other day, and Moses is teaching them God's commands, and he says that these words are supposed to be on their heart so that they could teach them to their children. And they didn't really have, obviously, printing presses in those days, so it seems like how it worked was that God would speak to Moses, Moses would speak to the people, and God would have Moses write it down as well, and the people were to listen, to think about it, and to remember it, and then to teach it, and the priests were to read it and be able to teach it to the people so the people could teach it to their children. And so the people were kind of like the printing press. In the ancient world, you would have this priestly scribal class, this one group of people who were literate, and they would read and memorize long texts. And the Bible sees, in the Bible, it seems like that's supposed to be true, not just of this one group, but all of Israel, actually. It's supposed to be the scribal uh, class. They were all supposed to know the law, think on the law, all Israel was supposed to know these stories and think on these stories because God had made a covenant, not just with the king, but actually with all of Israel. And they were all responsible to keep that covenant. And so, yes, we need help from others. We don't do this on our own. But from the beginning, God has really shown us a lot of grace and stooped down, not just to reveal himself to this select group of people among us, but to all of us. And so we should, of course, be wanting to take advantage of that privilege as much as we can. But how? But how? And so over the past couple of weeks, we said that one big step is just understanding what it is, the Old Testament, the kind of books that we're reading, which is almost instinctive when it comes to anything else. Um, we know this when it comes to almost anything else that we study. Um, our 
expectations and our ability to benefit from something are really shaped by knowing what that something is. And so if I think something's a map, but it's a recipe book, it's not going to be helpful. And I'm going to be disappointed if you try to use a recipe book like a map. Or if you expect to read fiction, but you're actually reading law code, you'll be like, that's so boring. And you won't understand, why did somebody give me this? And the same is true with the Bible. So many of the problems people have with the Bible come, and the Old Testament comes, from a wrong idea of what it is. And so, for example, if I think the Bible is a personal letter from God to me, I'm going to get something wrong. Like if I think it's, dear Josh, God, God is writing to me, and he is writing to you for sure, but through what he's written to someone else. When he says to Abraham, go, he means Abraham needs to go. And there's something there for me, but it's not to move to the promised land. This Sunday, we're, uh, this is something I think that's maybe funny for people when, as we're preaching through the Gospels, because it's, so, it's a little different, I think, what, the way we're preaching through the Gospels. I was just listening today to somebody preach on Jesus feeding the 5,000, and you know, the sermon title was, How to Do the Impossible. And it was about how you can do the impossible. And that's, that's reading the Gospels almost like a, a personal letter and not understanding that to get the meaning for us, we first have to understand what it actually originally meant. What Luke was intending was definitely not to tell us how to turn bread, I mean, turn bread, make bread to feed 5,000 people. And you're going to be disappointed if you think that's what's going on in the Bible. It's not Google search either, the Bible. You know, Google search, you just type in your question and you get this long list of possible answers. And so we might come to the Bible like that and think, what do I do in a bad marriage? Type, 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 type. But it doesn't quite work like that. It's got answers to that. Uh, but it's not like you can look up in a, a dictionary, M for marriage. Okay, here we go. There, there, there it is. Nice. No. And the Bible's not a motivational speaker or a devotional grab bag either. Some people are looking to the Bible first for inspiration or some emotional experience. And so they kind of open it up, and they're just looking, what moves me? What moves me? And then they skip the parts that don't seem so inspirational. But again, while there's inspiration in there, the Bible is doing something bigger than that. And it's important to understand what, because if you don't understand what the Old Testament is, you're going to be frustrated. So like, if you need a map, a map's amazing. And you're just so thankful for it. <laughs> but if you think a map is inspirational or something else, you're going to be frustrated. So what is it? What is the Bible? I was thinking one, uh, this week, one way the people who organized our Bibles tried to help us with that was just through what they called it. So they called it the Old Testament. And testament was a Greek translation of the word covenant. So old covenant, new covenant. And covenant's not a word that we use anymore much, but it's basically a way this formal relationship between people is established and enjoyed. So like adoption or like marriage is a covenant. And God is entering into a relationship with people, and this set of books helps us understand how that relationship works and what that relationship is. And it does that in all kinds of different ways. It's got poems, it's got laws, it's got parables, it's got proverbs, it's got history. It's almost over overwhelming, actually. And so we ask, how do we put all that together What's going on there so I can understand this covenant? And uh, we could talk about that for a while, and we actually have, but one way we can understand what's going on in the Old Testament is to look at the way the inspired writers of the New Testament thought about the Old Testament and how they organized it. And so we've done this, and we looked at Luke, and Luke is writing this story about Jesus, and he shows us Jesus preaching the Old Testament, and he summarizes what Jesus was preaching about as the kingdom of God. So Jesus is preaching the Old Testament, and he says it's about the kingdom of God. And then later at the end of Luke, Jesus is teaching the Old Testament to his apostles, and he summarizes it as being about himself, the Christ, the Messiah, and what God was going to do through him. So the Old Testament is about God's plan to establish his kingdom through the Messiah. If, if you understand that's what's going on in the Old Testament, it's really going to help you. It's a messianic book. It's to help you understand God's plan for establishing his kingdom through the Messiah. 
Paul, that's one summary. Paul also has a lot to say about the Old Testament. One of the places he does is 2 Timothy 3.14. And you remember he says that it is able to make us wise for salvation. So it's a set of books that helps us understand salvation and how to be part of that salvation. And then he says it's profitable for correction, for, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. So it teaches us how to be saved, and it gives us wisdom to know how to live. And so you'll find Paul. He'll go back to the Old Testament. He sees what's written there. He says, this is, this is for you, so you can have hope. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he uses examples, and he says, this is how we should live. Or he uh, uses the Old Testament for warnings. Don't be like this. And he uses the Old Testament to help us think through what to do. So there's a lot that's supposed to happen as we read the Old Testament. It may not be doing certain things. We might not always be able to open it and, and um, find, like, say this now. Do this now. We might not always open it and get, the, like, this emotional experience right away. But there's a lot that's supposed to be happening. It's to help us understand what God's doing through Jesus, to help us know how to be wise in this world and to live in a way that honors God. But for that to happen, there are some obstacles that we have to overcome. And I'm trying to review pretty quick. But last week we said pride is a big obstacle we have to overcome. And I'm going to say this one again, like for the rest of my life. Because you know how they say hunger makes the best cook? Humility makes the best Bible reader. I need to, I need to come to the Old Testament knowing that I need to learn from God. And so when you're sitting down with the Bible, the person writing is your teacher. We are not equals. When I read a, a passage of the Bible, I'm not equal to the author. <laughs> uh, he is speaking, in this case, as a human, we're both made in the image of God, but he is inspired. He is speaking for God. And so he's right. I know in America we like do more arguing with our teachers here. But this is, you're, you're arguing with an inspired teacher. <laughs> so it's really, it's like, it's really wonderful, actually, because it's like you can come and you can know, even if you don't understand everything, even if you don't um, know how it all works out, your teacher's right. And so you need to figure out how he's right. Not argue. But that takes work, obviously. And a second obstacle to benefiting from the Old Testament is impatience. Because we bring to the Bible a lot of our own cultural assumptions. And um, one of the, the worst things about our culture is that we really assume that we know more than every other culture. <laughs> and that sometimes is even true when it comes to uh, studying the scripture. And so one of the things that we think is that we should get answers really quickly. We're like, this is how you should teach me. It should be fast. No, you are the learner, and you might want it quickly, but the Old Testament, your teacher, doesn't really work like that most of the time. Your teacher takes a lot longer to teach you than uh, maybe you like it. And so last week, we began trying to give you a basic approach. How do you do this? And again, you don't do it all at once. You don't, you don't just open it up and know everything you're supposed to know at once. There's a a process to this, but you do need to know a direction. And so I gave you four questions to ask when you read the Old Testament. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And how can I change? And we spent a long time, the whole time really, on what does it say? Because it's so important. If I could give you one Bible reading superpower, it would be the ability to sit there for a long time and make observations. Like just look, 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 and looking and observing takes a while, especially, this is, uh, it's especially hard to do with passages that you're familiar with. Um, so some of the hardest passages in the Bible to preach are passages that everybody thinks they know. So like this Sunday, Jesus feeding the 5,000, that's very hard for me to preach because I know I've almost got to help people understand that they don't know it as well as they think they know it so that they can know it. Just like me, it's really hard for me to study. I have to, on Monday, I'm like, oh man, Jesus feeding the 5,000, I know this one. And then by Tuesday, I'm like, I don't know that one. And now today, I'm like, how am I going to be able to preach that on? But hopefully by Sunday, we'll see. But um, Exodus chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 10, just an illustration of um, how, how to make observations or just how there's much more there than we sometimes sometimes think. So I'm going to read Exodus 2, 1 to 10, and we're just going to do a little work at observing as an illustration here of what I mean when I talk about looking, 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 looking. Um, Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Okay, so who wrote this? Does anybody know who wrote Exodus? Moses. Okay, Let's read this and ask, would you know that Moses wrote this from the story? The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. What already there are you observing? You know Moses wrote this, but what there already are you observing about the way that he wrote this? He, him, what does that tell you about the way Moses wrote this? He's not writing it first person, he's writing it third person. So what would be different about this if it was written uh, first person narrative style? Yes, and how would that affect your reading of it? Yes, it's kind of, um, especially, this is one of the just a unique, interesting thing about the Pentateuch is that most stories like this, hero stories in the ancient world, would definitely be I, I, Sargon. But this is third person because Moses isn't going to end up being the hero. This is not uh, really about how great Moses is. This is going to be about how great God is. But it says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him uh, three months. When she could, I'm going to read the whole thing and then ask you a couple questions. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Well, let's stop there just for a second. We'll finish this in a minute. But who's missing? in those first few verses, and he's, he's kind of missing in the, in the rest of the verses there too, that you might expect in a book that's about God. Yeah, God. So how could you have written this if you were going to mention God? Even if you just look at um, verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. How could you write that in a way that would talk about God? You could say, God sent the woman down to bathe at the river. So that's just like something you're observing that's interesting, is we're getting this story from down here on earth, the just sort of human perspective. What does he tell us about the mom and dad? Okay, so twice it mentions Levi, right? What does it not tell us about the mom and dad? Their names, yeah. Um, as we look at this story so far, which gender is really emphasized? Actually, not so much males, females. Um, the, the man's there, the dad's there for a second, Moses is there, but everybody else is, uh, is women. Um, what do you know from the previous story that makes this more dramatic? Anybody remember what happened in the previous story with Pharaoh? Yeah, so he's trying to kill all the firstborn. So um, as you think about this woman getting pregnant, that's normally a time of like a lot of excitement, right? And then she finds out that she has a son. What's happening to her? It's becoming a time of great fear, right? Um, what happens in verse 2? She conceived, she bears a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So how much time it passes in that one verse? Uh, well, like 12, I guess, from conception to 
to birth, however long. So that's a lot of time in just one, one verse. What does she do in verse 3? She realizes she can't hide him any longer. Um, well, maybe even before we do that, when, in verse 2, she conceives. What does it say in verse 2 that's kind of interesting, that's kind of maybe funny? Yeah, it's like when she saw that he was a fine child, she decided, I better keep this one, right? That's the way it sounds almost. She hid him three months. That means beautiful, basically, attractive. Um, we're going to have to think about why would they, why would that, they mention that? The Bible doesn't, it's not like you're a modern novelist or something where it's like telling you all kinds of details. So if it tells you a detail, there's some reason it's there. You don't always know why it's there, but there's some reason why it's there. And you're just now, I'm just trying to show you what you kind of do is you just try to force yourself to make observations. Um, she hides him in a basket. That's actually like the word ark, which would make, I wish they would translate it like that. Um, a little ark. She puts the child in, in it and places it among the reeds by the riverbank. Why, why do you think she might place it by the, in the river? Yeah, this river is like the busy place in those days. A lot of, that's where the source of water was, so everybody's down by, by the river. Um, what does verse 4 do to the story? Why do you think, why do you think the mom isn't there? Who's, who's there in verse 4? Yeah, and who might you have expected to be there? I might expect the mom to be there. So that would make me think, I wonder why the mom isn't there. And now you don't know all the reasons. It doesn't always tell you, but you, you can think, oh, I wonder if it's just too painful to put your baby in a, in a little ark and worry about what's going to happen, or just the fear, I suppose, if somebody found it and sees this older lady there, they're going to assume it must be hers, um, especially if it's a Hebrew lady. Um, but the, the girl, the sister, stands watching. Um, why is verse 5 an especially tense moment, and how does the author make it feel tense? says, yeah, now the daughter of Pharaoh. So we don't know that she's good. And what do we know about Pharaoh so far? Yeah, he wants to kill the firstborn. So this seems like if we were reading it for the first time or watching it happen, it seems like the worst person to come down to the, to the, to the water. And um, how does the author sort of slow down? So verse 2 was so fast. That was 12 months in one verse. How does verses 5 and 6 sort of slow it down? She saw the basket. She sent her servant woman. She took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him. So it's almost like, it's almost like he's just pausing, pausing this. If, if you're watching this like a movie, what's going on in this scene? Yeah, but it's not right away. So she, he's, he's saving that sort of to, as the punchline. So you're watching her come down. And actually, all the, who's the one that actually sees, who notices the ark or the basket? So there's all of her ladies around her walking around. But who's the one that notices it? Yeah, so they're all kind of ignoring this little basket that's there. And I'm sure they're hearing some noises. But they're kind of ignoring it. But she's the one who notices, and she's the one who sends them over to get it. Um, and what, what might have been the, the struggle for Pharaoh's daughter as she opens this basket? Yeah, not just, yeah, obeying and also recognizing this is, yeah, this is not, this is the most powerful man on the planet at that point, and I'm sure not a gentle fellow if he's performing genocide on Hebrew babies. Uh, but this is a, f we're gonna see that in a second. Watch it, it's even here. So 
Um, she opens it. She saw, she saw the child. I wish they didn't translate it like that, like that either. It actually says she saw the boy. Um, and, and so that, I think, I think that detail matters because we already know it's a baby. Um, we know what's in there. When she opened it, we know what's in there. But it, it, it mentions she saw the boy. So it's like, oh, because the boys are the ones they're supposed to kill. Um, and it talks about her seeing, and um, he's already told us that Moses' mom saw that he was a fine child, so she's seen a beautiful baby here. And what does it tell us next? She saw the basket among the reeds. Oh, no, she, she saw the child, and then how does he put it next? Well, almost. Before that, he, he does one other thing. And behold... So what's he doing there with that detail? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like if, um, if this were a movie, we're watching Pharaoh's, we're watching the whole scene there. Pharaoh's daughter goes over there. She opens the basket. But now where's the camera when he says, behold? Do we see Pharaoh's daughter anymore? No, it's like now she's out of the scene and we're just looking at the baby. We're like kind of just beholding the baby. So now our attention's there. And the baby is... Uh, crying and something happens in her right she takes uh she takes pity on the on him and she says what does she say this is one of the hebrews children so what do you think's going on in her mind as she says that yeah right yeah you either have that or she's saying oh boy I got a decision to make. This is a Hebrew child. Uh, so, um, but she's taking pity, so it's more likely she's thinking, this is a baby that I need to, need to save. Um, and what happens next in verse uh, 7? What do we learn about uh, Moses' sister here? What's the picture? Totally. What does she do here that's so wise? Yeah, let's think about what she does. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, but is that what she says? So who does she say she'll call? Yeah. What do you wonder why why she uh, why she might not say I'm gonna go? She's just a little girl. I wonder why she might not say I'm gonna go call my mom. She says I'm gonna call you a Hebrew woman. I wonder what she's thinking. Okay, that's possible. Maybe she's still being careful. Or maybe she's recognizing that Pharaoh's daughter um, is a powerful woman <laughs> and uh, is, wants this child for herself. Because she says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And um, what does Pharaoh's daughter say and what does that tell us about what's happening? How do we see that she's kind of taken ownership of this child at this point? And nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. And um, that's not just being kind. Obviously, that she's paying wages as a way of saying, like, I have expectations. This is, uh, you can't steal this child from me. <laughs> uh, we're entering into a, a formal kind of relationship here. This child is mine, and I'll pay you something to take care of it for a while, but this child belongs to me. How do you think the mother must have felt when she heard from Miriam. What do you think were her emotions? Yeah. Her baby saved, right? She must have been, uh, uh, there must have been a, a level of excitement. Um, what's that? Happy sad, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that must have been, wow, this is what different than I expected. But there must have been uh, some sadness, even at the end of verse 9. What, how does verse 9 end that's kind of interesting, that, uh, different than how you might have expected? What, what, how does he describe the mother and the, and the child that's different than how you might have expected? Seems like it, it, this is 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it says woman child. Doesn't say mother. Doesn't say mother son. Um, and maybe that's just hinting at the the brutality of the Hebrew situation. I mean, we're excited to see that Moses is saved, but don't forget this is like a mother that's going to have to give her child up to some strange woman so that that woman's father doesn't murder her child. Um, it doesn't ever call Moses her son any longer here. And, and then what happens in verse 10? It just says, When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses is a cool name because in uh, Egyptian it means I drew him out of the water, but in Hebrew it means who's your daddy, um, and that will come up later. But, um, but we're seeing that Pharaoh's daughter has compassion here, but she's also clearly the one who's in charge. And one way this story indicates that is that it's Pharaoh's daughter who's speaking and Pharaoh's daughter who's naming Moses. You don't really hear Moses' mom ever speak. Um, she's like, I drew him out of the water. I am the one who saved him. Anyway, there's, there's more there. But the point is, the point of that is, we have to look and look and look and look. And while we might want quick answers and expect for everything in the Bible to be obvious, often it's not. And that's not a problem in the Bible. It's part of the design. It forces you to think and to meditate. And so when I sit down to have devotions in the morning, I recognize... I only have so much time and I need something for that day. I need God to speak. But I also realize this is just part of a process that takes place over a long period of time. And so I might not always get a lot that day, actually. But part of the process is just reading and rereading and rereading and rereading and noticing and thinking. And slowly but surely, it's like I'm beginning to understand the Old Testament world and its values. And so it's more of, a, more of a journey. But taking that journey requires at least having a little bit of a sense of how do you get the meaning from the text because it's good to notice, but you also need to interpret. What does it say? What does it mean? And the Old Testament can be difficult to interpret. And one part that's especially difficult are passages like the ones we just read, narrative. So in the Old Testament, you basically have narrative, you have poetry, and you have prose discourse. And those are the three main kinds of uh, writing in the Old Testament, and they all have their challenges. But I want to start with narrative. How do we understand and apply the stories we read in the Old Testament, also in the Gospels and Acts, but in the Old Testament primarily now? How do we understand and apply them? First of all, because they have a message. So when you read these stories, they are not just for entertainment. They, they're some of them that are very entertaining for sure, but they're not just there for entertainment. And they're not just there as a history lesson. Um, they're, they're not just there to tell you, okay, this is what it was like back in Egypt, or this is who the Hittites were. These men who wrote these books were prophets speaking for God. And they wanted to say something, and they wanted to do something in the people reading those stories. So they have a point. Narratives are intended to teach. When Moses wrote Genesis, he didn't write it just because he's like, you know what, I think it really, Joseph was an interesting guy, and so I think it would really be fascinating to tell people about Joseph. No, he's using these stories to preach. And uh, because it's not just Moses behind these stories, we know the stories are inspired. What he's trying to tell us is authoritative, and we need to know how do I get that message because there's a lot of them. And we need to think about how to get that message because we're not used to us. Most of us are not used to this way of teaching. We're used to certain genres for teaching. This happens really quickly to us as humans. I notice it with expository preaching. Um, sometimes people, they get so used to a genre that they don't even really think about what expository preaching is anymore. They think expository preaching is three points and a poem. And it's like, no, expository preaching is exposing you to the meaning of the Bible. That's the essence of expository preaching. And if you're exposed to the meaning of the Bible and you understand what the meaning of the text is and how to apply it, that's expository preaching, whether the guy tells you three points or not. A guy can tell you three points, read a text, and it not be expository preaching. 
because he didn't actually explain the meaning of that text. But we just, just the way we work as humans. We get so used to a form that we think that's how, that's what we mistake the form for the essence. But we do that, we do that. But in general, um, when you think about someone teaching you, you probably don't just think of them telling you a story. So um, imagine you're going somewhere to learn something and all the person does is tell you a story about their life and then they're just done. You would be like, what just happened? Uh, we don't think of that as teaching. Though, I would argue that you have been taught a lot by just people telling you stories. I think you've probably been taught more about the world through stories than you have other ways, actually. You just didn't realize that you were learning that way because stories shape you and the way you look at the world at a deep level. Even stories shape what you think is attractive. Stories, this is why the stories you let your children read or watch are so, so important um, because they're shaping them. Stories catechize. We're just um, not always as good at looking at the stories and understanding what's going on and how to move towards getting the message. I think when I went to seminary, um, they didn't do a good job helping us understand how to benefit from narrative in the Bible. Uh, there's just not much time in seminary, and so most of the training goes towards understanding and preaching epistles which is a different skill than narrative. And so how do you get that point when they don't just say it directly? Because they don't, they don't usually do that in the stories in the Bible. They don't usually like, okay, here's a story, here's the moral. Um, so let me give you a couple ideas that have helped me. I didn't realize I'm taking so much time, but. First of all, remember the writer is a preacher. So you have to ask, what is his sermon about? And I keep saying this, but he's not just showing you what happened. He's telling you a story a certain way to communicate a certain message. And so that means as you're reading the story, you want to know, yeah, what is this story is about? What are the details? What are the facts? But also, why is this story here in this book and in the place in the book that it is? Every passage is there for a reason. It's doing something. And you have to know what it's doing to understand it. If you get that wrong, even if you know what the words mean, you haven't interpreted it correctly. So what is the argument this story is making? And how is the story making that argument? So when he tells us the story of David and Goliath, he's not simply telling you that to recreate an event. There's a narrator behind those stories, and he's choosing that story, and he's telling that story a certain way, and he's telling that story with the details he tells to get you to think something, to get you to value something, to get you to believe something, to help you see something. And so you have to watch how he's telling it to understand what difference the author thinks this story is supposed to make. And so you can see this is going to be a process, honestly. Most of the time when I start reading through stories in the Old Testament, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't know what's going on. It just means you need to do a little, a little work. One thing that helps you understand the individual stories is making sure you know the point of the book. And so if we think of the author as a preacher and the story as a sermon, it's a sermon in a series. So it's a part of an argument. And so if I have a sense of the whole argument, then I get an idea of what to look for in the individual stories. And how do you do that? Well, you can get help. That's a, that's a quick way. And there are certain people who are better at this than others, explaining the big picture of the book. Um, I, give you, I gave you an illustration there from something called the Bible Project. Um, this uh, particular individual has a unique ability to summarize, um, summarize books of the Bible and their purposes. But um, I'm trying to find where I have it. I'm... Oh, here it is. Okay, so look at down at this is what I'm talking about here. For those on the listening on the podcast, this is a uh, poster that overviews judges. So look down at that. Just looking at that, okay, what is he telling you is the theme of this book? 
sort of it says Israel's total failure, actually, right under judges. So he's not simply, that, that's a good point, he's not simply wanting you to know that the judges were corrupt. He's wanting you to show, he, he's wanting to show you that for a purpose. But here he's saying this book is describing the total failure of uh, Israel. Um, and then you can walk through, he kind of summarizes how it makes that argument. In chapters 1 and 2, Israel fails to drive out the Canaanites. 3 through 16, we see the, this corruption of Israel's judges. 17 through 21, the corruption of the people of Israel. They're just as bad as the people they drove out at the end of the book. And so um, you even see up the, at the top there, be warned, Israel becomes Canaanite. And so this book is showing you Israel becoming basically a Canaanite nation. And then, of course, you have to think about why would he want, why do I need to know that? What's the significance of that coming out of uh, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, coming after Judges, coming before the book of Kings? But he's trying to make an argument. I've also given you a couple of um, helpful summaries of, of the book of Judges there uh, by a guy named Peter Kroll and then another from uh, called the Overview Bible. Um, so you start, one of the things you do is you start by asking, what is this sermon series about? So if I'm looking at Judges, I realize, okay, God has kept all his promises to Israel. They're in the land. What are they going to do now? And what we see now is they become as bad as the people they kicked out. They totally fail to obey the covenant. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's pretty significant for me because Israel's the hope at this point of, of salvation. And now they're in danger of being kicked out of the promised land themselves. So they're doing, they're basically doing exactly what Adam, they're, re, they're redoing Adam's thing in the Garden of Eden, and we know what happened to Adam. And so if Israel gets kicked out of the garden, we're all in trouble, because Israel is, is, for God so loved the world, he chose Israel. That was Genesis 1 through 11, and then 12. So this is a, a big moment. We need to know how is God going to solve this. And of course, then comes, this sets us up for the Davidic covenant. But So one way to understand the book is to, uh, or understand a story is to just get some help understanding the uh, argument of the book that you're reading, and then you'll be able to look at the individual stories. And so as you look at, like, the judges, you realize, okay, this book is showing me this downward, downward cycle of Israel becoming more and more Canaanite. And so as I read the stories of the judges, what I'm going to see, and he even shows you here, they go from pretty good to worse. To, to as bad as they can be. And so I'm looking at a story like Gideon, and I'm going to realize, oh, my expectations, I have questions about Gideon already. We'll come back to that. But besides getting help, you can work on getting the argument of the book yourself by thinking about who wrote it, when he wrote it, not so much the name of the author, though when you have that, that's great, but put yourself in the author's shoes, even if you don't know the name. He's representing Yahweh. He's generally connected back to the covenant, or he's looking forward to what God's going to do since Israel failed to keep the covenant. And you have to ask, what is he concerned about? What are his priorities? What would his concerns have been? You want to put yourself in the author's place and then the reader's shoes. What is their situation? And this is why you learn history. This is why you learn geography. So you can try to hear the message the way they might have heard it. And you're trying to get at what they call the redemptive historical situation, which sounds funny, but what that means is where are they at in terms of what God's doing? So you're reading the Pentateuch and you're thinking, where are they literally? They're on the, the border of the promised land. What pressures would they have faced? How do the contents of the book suggest what the author thought were the main issues they faced? When he wrote Genesis 1, he's, he's, not, he's not writing a, a group of uh, you know, people sitting in a lab or something. He's writing a group of people about to go into the promised land. So he has, he's writing that story to help us certainly now 
but he's writing that story in that context for a certain reason to help them, telling the truth to help them in a certain way, but he writes it the way that he does to help them. Or later books, Abner Chow explains, say you're reading Ezra or Nehemiah, which comes after the exile. We also have to seek to grasp how the writers of Ezra or Nehemiah understood their circumstances theologically. They see this moment as God granting Israel a second chance to live for him. However, the question is whether or not this return marks the absolute completion of the exile. And these books help answer that. And you have to read them and observe how. Like we've been doing in Luke, we keep saying, what would it be like to be there in the early church? And you're reading all this stuff about God saving Israel, and then you see Israel rejecting Jesus and Jesus crucified, and you're a Gentile, and you're like, what just happened? Were the, were the apostles right? Do they know what they're talking about? Because it seems, seems like something different. And Luke's like, I'm writing so you can understand that Jesus really is the fulfillment. And I'm telling you these stories so you can see the connection. But every book has a reason. And so the stories in the, that book is part of how the author's making his argument. And you need to be able to trace that and explain it. So figure out the author's intent in the book. You want to understand the author's logic. What did he think he was saying in this book? And then, okay, now look at the story. How does that fit? That's going to give you some real helps to interpretation. The author's a preacher. What's the argument of a book? Now, the story itself, because Old Testament authors told stories a certain way, just like we do. So we tell stories very differently than uh, they did, but we have things we emphasize and ways we tell stories, and so did they. The stories they told had a certain structure. So... uh, I'll just get to two of these things because we don't have much time. And then, I, but first of all, you want to know as you, what story am I looking at? So I don't know if you've heard of the television show Twenty Four, but it was a whole one-year um, series with lots of episodes, and each episode was one hour, I think, in one day. And so the one episode wasn't the whole story, but it was a key part of the story. And when you read narrative, you want to know, okay, what show am I watching right now? What is this about? And then what particular episode am I looking at? And then, of course, you want to know, how does this episode contribute to the whole story? Um, And how do you do that? How do you do do that? Well, I think it's a little intuitive. So we looked at Exodus 2, 1 through 10. How did we know that was a new episode? Well, you could look at um, Exodus 1, 5, and you can just see how how Moses does this. He says... Um, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So he's sort of focusing our attention on this situation. Now chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And verse 11, how do we know that's a new scene? One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So it's almost like you're watching a, a, a movie and you're trying to, before you start doing too much study, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the scene that I'm studying right now? Um, and there's some clues you can look for. Chapter headings sometimes help. Paragraph breaks. Changes in time usually are helpful. Uh, change in location, that's the way Luke does it a lot of times. Um, sometimes there are just markers in the text. So I don't know, we have these chapters in our Bible, but did you know the writer of Genesis actually put chapters in, but it's not actually numbers, they're called toledots. And so there's just a, a phrase that's repeated throughout Genesis, and that whenever it's repeated, we're in like a new section of, of, of Genesis. Um, or the story might be resolved and you move on to something new. So you mark off the scenes and you can write a short summary of what happened in each scene, who's in it, what's going on, what's the scene basically about. And that's the part that's really important. You want to identify the scene, and you want to think about the plot. What is the story about? And um, I'm just going to show you to end. I wish I could do more, because I was going to talk about a, a little bit more. But I want to show you just a short video that talks about how to discover the plot of a story that you're reading. So people listening on the podcast, this is why you have to come. <laughs> just joking. Just joking. 
This is going to be, I'm going to go fast because I know everybody's got life to live here. I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah? She's trying on another computer? Because I'm serious about um, Jan's way. How to read the Bible? Yeah, probably there. I'm getting it on my phone so I can hold it there. Just see who does a. There we go. What's? It's gonna be. I'm gonna do it. Here we go. There we go. We're learning how to read different types of literature in the Bible. And we're going to start by talking about narrative. Imagine video so going. narratives in their most basic form have characters, innocent... That's a good missionary technique. <laughs> yeah, can you all see this right here? What if I? Yeah, there we go. Tell me when. I'll play the sound. You hit the video. 
So I'm losing everybody here. Yeah. Oops. We're learning how to read different types of literature in the Bible. And we're going to start by talking about biblical narrative. So narratives, in their most basic form, have characters in a setting going through a series of events. And how those events are selected and then arranged by an author, that's called the plot. A basic plot line begins with a character in her setting. But then something new or unexpected happens, causing problems that lead up to some ultimate conflict, which is then resolved and the character finds herself changed, living in a new normal. Now, in reading narratives, it's important to understand every scene in the context of its larger plot line. You can make the same story have a totally different message if you ignore where it occurs in the plot. This happens all the time when people read the Bible. Really? Yeah, take, for example, the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win a battle, and he requests a sign from God. Yeah, Gideon lays a wool fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally dry, and God does it. Now, if you look at this scene just by itself, what is the conflict? How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution? Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story, and it totally misses the point, because it's ignoring the larger plot line. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning. You'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading people, the Midianites. Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a good story. But then Gideon's super hesitant, so he asked God to do this magic trick, a sign, so I can know it's really you talking to me. And God stoops to his level. He gives him a sign by lighting this fire on an altar. So Gideon's already asked for a sign. And that's not all. In the next scene, God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another god, but Gideon's so afraid, he does it at night. So Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward. Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain, so he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign. Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs. Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not how can Gideon discern the mystic Okay, oh, pause it, pause it. I'm, I'm going to be there. Oh, sheesh. Um. It's the will of God. The real conflict is, when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God? Okay, so then what's the resolution? We have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites, and God says, no, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns the favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches, and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon doesn't. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy. They start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story isn't offering the reader tips for discerning God's will. No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined. Okay, so short scenes, like Gideon and the Fleece, are combined with other scenes making up a larger plot line. And tracing the conflict and resolution through the plot helps you see the message the author's trying to get across. Now, Gideon's story has been set alongside many other stories that are also about these flawed, often questionable leaders called judges. And each of these has its own internal plot line. But then altogether they make up a whole movement of the biblical story, the period of the judges, and that has its own unified plot line. And there are many movements within the story of the Bible. Exactly. And all the smaller stories, hundreds of them, they fit within the context of their own movements. And then these movements together make up the building blocks of the grand plot line of the whole story of the Bible. So no matter where I'm reading in the Bible, I need to pay attention to these different layers of plot so I can read each story in context. Exactly. 
the Bible is such a sophisticated piece of literature. And so all these smaller plot lines keep overlapping, building up the tension. And when you back up, you can see how they've all been woven together into the unified story that leads to Jesus. All right, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's exciting. That's what we'll try to do this year as we study Scripture together. And you know, it's, it's really great to be able to do it together. This is part of how the Bible is meant to be read, not just uh, sitting on our own. That's a great place to do it, but also learning together. God bless you this week. <laughs>